coming up on today's show with a new premier. What does that mean for Alberta municipalities? The Emergencies Act inquiry gets underway in Ottawa today. What's happening there and uh, what kind of questions are we looking to answer through all of this? And more and more concern about what's happening in Ukraine and that constant threat of nuclear weapons in the background. What's next? So we have a new premier as of Tuesday and a change at the top can change everything in a relationship. And when it comes to the provincial government, the relationship with all of the many municipalities in the province, of course, is Well, it's vital to each and every one of us. Most of us live in some kind of municipality. And um, like she has with a lot of different files, Daniel Smith has talked about some pretty substantial shifts, some pretty big issues when it comes to that relationship. So to find out how Alberta's municipalities are feeling about the new premier, what they're hoping for, what they're expecting, we're joined now by Kathy Heron, who is the mayor of St. Albert and also uh, president of Alberta Municipalities. Kathy, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the attention, Shay. How are you? I'm great, great. Thanks so much. Um, so what is the plan for your organization when there's a new premier sworn in? How, how does the relationship between the provincial government, and specifically in this instance, obviously, the premier, and Alberta municipalities typically work? What's that relationship like? Uh, typically, our relationship is you know, generally through the Minister of Municipal Affairs. Right. Uh, and so we'll have to wait and see who that is. But um, yeah, I see this as a relationship a bit of a new era, but it's still with the same party, and so they'll probably be still following some of their old party platforms and policies uh, around municipalities. But it is an opportunity for us to um, elevate our voice around the province and our needs and issues. Have you heard at all from Premier Smith yet, or is like like you say, is that not typically how it would work, or has she reached out and spoken with your group? No, not yet, and I wouldn't expect her to until she's got her cabinet sworn in, et cetera. But um, we will be sending an invitation right away to to get together with either my board or my executive or even just myself and see see what kind of relationship we can start forming early. What is your expectation? Given the campaign, as I say, there were some issues brought up around municipalities in the province. What's your expectation as to what might be on the agenda for you? Well, I'm hoping, um, you know, Danielle has, sorry, Premier Smith has talked a lot about um, getting more respect from Ottawa. And, um, you know, I'm hoping she's willing to model that same um, expectation to my level of government, the local level, in in such that, um, you know, we are obviously constituted by legislation of the province. But at the same time, once that legislation is put in place, we would like to have some autonomy around our decision-making. And so that's what she's expecting from Ottawa, and so that's what I hope she would um, extend to the municipalities. Some of the specific issues that have come up and have been talked about, and I know there's been a lot of talk about the provincial police force, something that your group has has flatly rejected. Alberta municipalities don't seem to be uh, supportive of this idea at all. Um, she is continuing to have conversations around it. She says she wants to bring more municipalities on board. Um, are you eager to continue those conversations? Is there a chance to bring municipalities on board or is the discussion over for you? No, there's absolutely opportunities for us to be part of the conversation. And we've always said that um, improving public safety and policing in our communities is a, is a positive conversation and a direction we want to we want to head into. Whether that's RCMP or provincial police force, there's always room for improvement. Um, I do. I have noticed in the last couple of days, uh, Premier Smith's uh, verbiage around provincial policing has altered slight. She's talked about augmenting policing, so I'm not yeah, sure if that's yeah. augmenting 
the RCMP or continuing on the path of provincial policing. And hopefully we're going to get clarity on that very quickly. Um, another thing, yeah, like you say, she's so not talked about a, a wholesale change of the force, but more augmentation. So, and like you, yeah. we'll wait and see how it goes. But she's also talked about some pretty large scale um, changes in some areas uh, throughout the course of the campaign, even talking about the whole funding relationship and saying, you know what, maybe municipalities should be able to keep all of the money that they raise. I mean, we're talking about some pretty substantial shifts in the way things typically operate. <laughs> she has, and it's something my association, and I and I believe the rural municipalities as well, has been um, advocating for for a long time, is to um, stop collecting the education property yeah, tax. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or allow us to keep that those dollars. And so she has said that many times during the campaign. She said it to the mid-sized mayor. She said it at our convention. So that is something we're eager and that would probably be the number one thing we would really want to pursue with her. How that looks, I'm not sure she's even figured it all out. There might need to be some sort of equalization around the province because some collect a lot based on how much property you have in your municipality. But it is um, it is a wholesale change on how a municipality is funded, and so we're excited to have that conversation. Yeah, and like you say, the details around that would be fascinating because it's not just it's not just the funding side of it; it's also your expenditure side of it, right? And I mean, how would that change, or would that change? I can't imagine the province would just say, "Well, you keep all those billions of dollars, and we'll still pay for everything that we pay for." I imagine there's going to be a bill that comes along with it, right? Well, I think the last numbers I've heard is we're collecting about $2.5 billion on behalf of the province. And so, you know, my, my municipality collects about $36 million and we just turn it right over to the province. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we get about, you know, historically I would get around $14 million in infrastructure funding back. So definitely not a one-to-one. But uh, if we were to keep that full 36 and not get any... Um, any kind of grant money that would still be better for my city and many cities in the province would benefit from that new structure. So it's we're talking about two and a half billion dollars. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. What's it like? I mean, as we know, the relationship is, is so important, and and like you say, I mean, the money goes one way and then some comes back, and you're sort of that's how you plan what you're doing with all the uncertainty that we've seen and the fact that we've now got the new premier, and then we've got a by election in a month, and then we've got a general election in six or seven months. I mean, how difficult is it for municipalities in Alberta to try and sort of plan and have some sort of ability to predict what might be happening in the summer, even? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and you, you you hit the nail on the head. It's it's super difficult because everything the last month or so has been put on hold. I, I, you know, Ministry of Municipal Affairs has pretty much said, leave us alone for a week because we don't know even know who our minister is. So we have lots of stuff going on. We're talking about infrastructure funding and, and how that formula is going to work. We've been negotiating, and everything's on hold. Okay. And, and you're right, what might be on hold until November 8th, I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. We we don't know. I mean, there's so many different things going on at the same time. Now, assuming Danielle Smith wins November 8th, she's the premier, she's in the legislature, and now we're focused on a general election campaign that will be six months away. Um, like you said, obviously, this funding framework that's been mused about would be something that's important. What else will municipalities be putting forward to try and get talked about during the campaign? Uh, it, we've heard a lot about AHS. We've heard a lot about a provincial police force. What are the priorities for municipalities in Alberta? I think for sure the uh, policing would be number one. So the funding formula, the policing, um, emergency medical services, so the ambulance in Alberta. Um, you know, municipalities used to run ambulance services before 2009. Um, I have heard her indicate that maybe there's an opportunity to go back that to that direction, and I think we would welcome that conversation. The province took it over, and it 
as you as you know very well, it's not working right. No, no, as, as it should be. Uh, there, there's been a lot of good work towards ambulances uh, over the last six to seven months, and I'm looking forward to seeing if um, whoever's Minister of Health carries that forward. But that would be an issue for sure. I think FCSS funding, which is you know what municipalities collect, deal with a lot of our. Um, we help fund food banks and mental health issues, all the preventative social services, it's big on our minds in in, uh, in every municipality across the province. So that would be an issue we would hope would be a conversation during a provincial election campaign. Yeah, so many issues. Kathy, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate that you always uh, have municipalities on your mind yeah. when you're doing your talk. So thanks so much. Doors always open. Thanks, Kathy. Appreciate it. Okay, bye. That is Kathy Heron. Kathy is the mayor of St. Albert, and she is also president of the Alberta Municipalities. Big story in Ottawa today, and one I know... A lot of people in Alberta will be watching closely. Today, the public inquiry into the uh, well, the very controversial decision to invoke the Emergencies Act has begun. It's underway as we speak right now, and uh, it's going to be very closely watched. There is, we know that. There's no question about it. Um, the commissioner, Paul Rollo, and his staff started proceedings today explaining just how things are going to work, okay, before the witnesses actually begin testifying tomorrow. It's kind of like opening statements today. In his opening remarks, he urged everyone involved, everyone involved to work together so that Canadians can learn some things. Uncovering the truth is an important goal. When difficult events occur that impact the life, lives of Canadians, the public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. So there's your broad strokes, what the expectations are today. And this is going to be an exhaustive inquiry. As I said, I expect it to last several weeks, at least until the end of November. Um, Dozens and dozens and dozens of witnesses, tens of thousands of documents. It's going to be... Uh, very in-depth, very lengthy, and very political. I don't think there's any question about that. And some of you on the text line are already pointing out, you have reservations about how this will play out. And so do I. I think the political spin around this will be enormous. And I'm hopeful, very hopeful, that those involved in conducting this inquiry will be able to somehow cut through all of that and actually just focus on the facts at hand. Um, For some help on how this all works, we're going to chat now with Laura Stevenson, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Western University. Um, Laura, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. Happy to be here. So this inquiry, let's just start. This is this is not being done for any other reason than it has to. When you invoke this law, which the Trudeau government did for the first time ever, you must have a public inquiry within a set time, right? This is just how it works. Yeah, that's correct. This is a built-in part of the act. Um, and so it's just, you know, kind of the government checking up on itself. And you can imagine that when the act was first passed, this was put in as type of a, a um, not a fail-safe, obviously, because it didn't prevent it from happening, but a, a check on the powers of the government. Yeah, that's what it is. Sort of like, okay, well, you have the power, you're you're allowed to invoke this act, but you're going to have to explain it down the road, right? And uh, we've never done this before. So it's like you say, it's just sort of, it's built in to make sure that there's some accountability. That's correct. So the focus of this inquiry, how does it work? What, like, what's the question before them or what are the questions? What, what is the focus of this inquiry? 
Uh, well, obviously, I'm, I'm not taking part in it directly, but I can imagine that um, what's going to uh, come out is, a, you know, a kind of a, a full narrative of who knew what when and what was going on. And, you know, the ideas that Trudeau is putting forward is that, like, they had to call this. They, they, this was the only way things were going to happen. And is that actually true, right? So there can be a number of ways to look at that, um, the, you know, looking to see what other levels of law enforcement and authorities were or were not doing. Um, was it, in fact, left to the federal government to step in? Were there other options? Um, and also, you know, does this constitute or uh, an emergency under the Act? I think there might be different minds on that. And so I think we'll hear some different perspectives there. I think it's going to be fascinating to see who is involved and who actually testifies. As I said, uh, Tamara Leach on the list, Pat King on the list. Those are two of the convoy slash organizers. You've got Prime Minister Justin Trudeau maybe involved, the mayor of Ottawa. I mean, we're going to be hearing from anybody who is even remotely connected to this. That should be really interesting and could be potentially very, I don't know if explosive is the word, but controversial at the very least. I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, as you mentioned, this this kind of inquiry has to happen. So it's not that it's being driven by partisan considerations, right. yeah. but you know, the the convoy itself and the protest had a lot of uh, partisan tinges to it. And so you're right. That's you know what people say and how they present themselves and their behaviors. I think are going to be um, carefully watched and interpreted in maybe even contradictory ways. I think that's going to be the very interesting part. I mean, there will be parties on both sides of the argument that you just laid out that will use this as a political tool, right? We need to be aware of that and careful about that. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with that. And this is something to to pay close attention to, I guess, right? Because uh, the inquiry itself is hopefully going to be uh, nonpartisan in its report. Um, it's the spins on that report that are what we need to pay closer attention to. And, you know, if we want to really understand the root of this and, uh, you know, whether or not this act should have been used just in terms of, like, the powers of the federal government, right, from a completely abstract point of view, yeah. then it's important that we don't uh, tinge things with, you know, oh, I really don't like Trudeau, therefore he shouldn't have used it. Oh, but wait, if my person wasn't in power, then they should have, you know what I mean? That kind yep. of thing is, there's a partisan bias. It's, it's hard to get rid of, but it's really important in these cases that, you know, this act was put in place for a reason. And any government could be called upon or could be in a position to use it in the future. And so we got to think about ways to make sure we set precedents um, now uh, for what is appropriate and inappropriate use that can be carried for reg- forward regardless of who's uh, sitting in. in I, think you, I, I think you're so right. And I think that that's the risk that we run here. This is going to be turned into perhaps one of the biggest political footballs this country has seen in a very, very long time. Um, do you think the inquiry? can somehow insulate itself from that. I mean, the inquiry's just got to focus on the job at hand, right, and make sure that with all the noise and the partisan squabbling that we know is going to happen, we should be able to find just the narrative of this is what happened, this is what the inquiry is finding, and, and they'll make their determination. And we should be able to put the parties, you know, bickering aside, do you hope? 
I mean, I, I think that uh, the people who are going to be um, doing the work of the inquiry uh, will have that top of mind. You know, um, you know, th- this is not a job to be taken lightly, no. and I'm sure that people are taking it and the nonpartisan aspect of it extremely seriously. Um, again, it's the spin that I would be looking for. And, you know, obviously media will interpret things, as you guys do mm-hmm. appropriately. You're, you're important source of information for us. But it's also what the, the party uh, leaders say and what the politicians say, um, maybe even how the premiers weigh in. I mean, all those kinds of things are important. And and it's reporting on those reactions sometimes that can take away from the actual content of the the inquiry's work itself. So, you know, I, I hope that we can all spend some time reading <laughs> what was probably going yeah. to be a fairly dry document in the end <laughs> format, just because they typically are. But, you know, if we can focus on that, I think then maybe we can keep our eye on the ultimate prize here. I think you make such a good point, though, because, I mean, if you want to, you can watch it live on globalnews.ca right now. I don't know how many people will today, <laughs> let alone for six or seven weeks. So we're going to be subjected to the explosive moments. We're going to be subjected yeah. to the social media snippets. Um, yeah. And those are going to be the overwrought, hyper-partisan things that you and I say could derail this whole process? Possibly. Um, <laughs> but again, you know, cooler, hail, cooler heads could prevail. And, you know, I do think that we, we all found this to be a very serious um, event in Canadian politics and Canadian history. And so, uh, you know, I think people are going to be pretty responsible in how they think about it. I hope so. Uh, Laura, great insight. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. That is Laura Stevenson. Laura is a professor in the political science department at Western University. Really interesting things happening overseas right now. Interesting is one way of putting it. Troubling might be another. Uh, What's next in Ukraine? Every week seems to bring yet another development, and uh, that elusive off-ramp that we keep talking about and looking for is yet to materialize. Uh, Once again, Vladimir Putin has escalated the attacks on Ukraine. You know about that. Uh, And Ukrainian civilians, in fact. And and always looming in the background of all of this is the constant threat of nuclear war. And it's really in the news today in a big way. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron said that France wouldn't attack Russia should Putin break the nuclear taboo uh, and, and use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, but at the same time, the NATO nuclear planning group is meeting today in Brussels and organizing a nuclear exercise in response to a Russian nuclear exercise. And we know about all the rhetoric around it. So so where are we headed? Are we headed to a really, really bad place, perhaps? Uh, we're going to have a conversation about what's going on there right now with Valerie Osterveld, who is the Associate Director of Western University's Centre for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Re- Reconstruction also a member of the Canadian Partnership for International Justice. Valerie, thank you so much for joining us again. I appreciate your time. I'm happy to be here again. I, I hate to ask you to, to, to gaze into a crystal ball here, but let's start there. I, I don't know if anybody really knows where we're headed, what might come next. I mean, do you have any thoughts on what the direction is that we're on right now? Because there's definitely some troubling rhetoric happening. Absolutely, there's troubling rhetoric happening. It's very disturbing, actually, uh, this confluence of events that have been happening lately. So everything from the sham referenda in Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia regions, Mm -hmm. and then the annexation, this discussion about the use of nuclear weapons, 
Um, and the use of the missiles this week from Monday till today uh, all over Ukraine and the use of drones as well, kamikaze drones. So all, all of this is very disturbing term of, turn of events. What do you think is behind it? Is it, I mean, uh, from what I'm reading from a lot of people, it's because Putin feels more and more and more cornered, more and more desperate. And, and the bridge to Crimea was another one that sort of uh, was an embarrassment and he's feeling more and more trapped. Do you, do you put any credence to that theory? Yes, it seems so. It seems that uh, Putin is reacting to um, concerns that maybe he's losing ground and losing this war that he started. And um, certainly the attack on the bridge was embarrassing for him, especially since Russia had built that bridge yeah. as a proof of, you know, its control over Crimea. Um, and then the missile attacks this week are retaliation against Ukraine Um in response to that embarrassment. Um, what we're seeing today uh, from the NATO uh, Nuclear Planning Committee, it's not its not completely novel. This is an annual uh, event that happens regularly. It's obviously different this time around and the planning of an exercise. Um, where do you think we are in terms of what the West is feeling in, you know, in terms of risk of actual nuclear conflict happening here? I think that there's a great deal of worry that nuclear weapons might be used by Russia, given that so many unpredictable things have happened since February the 24th. Um, every It seems that at every turn when things look like there could potentially be, as you mentioned, some kind of off-ramp to yeah. peace in Ukraine, then Russia comes up with some other way of... Um, attacking Ukraine, undermining Ukraine, taking its territory, etc. And obviously, um, I also meant to mention the uh, call-up of reserves in Russia not going as well as uh, Putin thought it would go, you know, calling for 300,000 reserves to come, and then mass exodus out of his own country, very public, um, that's another embarrassment he's trying to overcome lately. When you've got that kind of a situation, and you're right, I was going to bring that up, you've got the, the, the domestic support for this uh, conflict that he started in Ukraine appears to have largely evaporated, maybe not entirely, but in large part, you've got people fleeing the country, you've got protests in the streets, so he doesn't have that. Uh, in terms of his you know, his uh, validity with the West, he conducts these referendums on the Donbass and everybody says, yeah, we don't even pay attention to that. It doesn't matter. It's a joke. Uh, that that reality must be setting in in the Kremlin, sort of like we're, we're really running out of options here for that off-ramp that we were talking about. Is that still even a possibility? Is there a way that he can negotiate a resolution to this and save face and think that it's it's acceptable? Well, what that off-ramp would look like is becoming less and less clear. Um, You know that yesterday in the UN General Assembly, there was a vote to adopt a resolution on the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and Russia was rebuffed in two different ways. First, it called for a secret ballot, and overwhelmingly countries voted against that request, and then, of course, voted in favor of adopting this resolution. Really large numbers. There are 143 countries in favor and and only five against. So that's yet another message to Russia that, um, in fact, the momentum is building on the side of Ukraine and against um, Russian actions. But the only negotiations that are going on right now 
are between Putin and the Turkish president with respect to the grain and fertilizer deal. So what is next is really unclear. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, the the prospects seem to get, as you said, it gets more and more um, constrained in terms of the options available for them to try and negotiate something here. So uh, at, at at this point, what do you read into, um, you know, some of the things that are happening with NATO? Uh, the United Nations also had a very high level meeting about this earlier this week. So you've got the international community focused, but it seems to me like they're not really talking about negotiating or or even having talks with Russia at this point. It's preparing for the next escalation. Um, NATO is for sure. In the UN General Assembly yesterday, the resolution called for the de-escalation of the current situation, called for political dialogue, negotiation, mediation, and other peaceful means of settling the dispute. So there, there's at least um, some indication of political will to get this back on a negotiation track. But right now, there doesn't seem to be any um, open doors. Certainly, uh, we saw that from President Zelensky, understandably, earlier this week, saying uh, that the doors are not open at this time. Yeah, very, very troubling time. Uh, Valerie, thank you so much for your time, as always. I really appreciate you being here. You're welcome. Take care. That is Valerie Osterveld, who is an Associate Director of Western University's Centre for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.